going completely fat-free isn't the answer, then what fats should we be eating, and why? And which ones should we be avoiding, and why are we avoiding them? If you already heard episode number 31, Allison's 140-pound weight loss, then you heard how she went completely fat-free for 10 years, and the devastating effects that that had on her health, and what she had to do to recover her health. In this episode, we'll investigate the subject of fats a little bit more deeply, and we'll share what fats we use in our kitchens, why we use them, how we get them, and also a little bit about some of the fats we avoid, as well as the kind of shocking story on the origin of Crisco. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Allison. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Thank you for asking. Oh, so I'm super excited because we have three new patrons since our last recording. Things are really yeah. ramping up on the patron community. Thanks, we guys. Have, I hope I pronounced all the names right. We have Mahala, Megan, Hi. but it has an A in it, so it may be Megan, and mm-hmm. um, Adriana. Three lovely ladies have come on. Um, Our podcast is sponsored by you and the other patrons. So thank you very much. If you're interested Mm -hmm. in seeing what our community has to offer, um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast, which is great. I've also got a review to read today, which I'm just going to get up in front of me. Okay. There we go, which is from Apple Podcasts. We we do ask for reviews on Apple Podcasts, but then we forget to go and look and see if anyone's <laughs> left them. <laughs> and, um, so we terrible. found some recently. This one's from, um, oh, this one's quite a recent one. This one's from April. So last month we're recording now okay. and it's May. And it's from someone called Dream Homesteader. And it's mm-hmm. titled Found What I Was Looking For. And this person says, I couldn't stop listening to Ancestral Kitchen podcast for a couple of hours upon discovering it. Everything resonated with me so much. I had to go back and listen to the same episodes again, but this time with a notebook and pencil. I have recommended this podcast to my family and like-minded friends. You ladies are so inspiring. Keep doing your great work. How nice is that? You you can just tell we love the same things. You know, Dream Homestead and... Yeah, when when you find those people who are talking about the same things that are in your heart, it really resonates. So I know that feeling, finding that place. So I'm really glad to hear that we are that place for her or him. That's kind of what we wanted when we started the podcast. You know, I felt like there was a community out there somewhere of people who ate and felt and believed, and and we're finding them. We're not alone. Yeah. Yeah which is really awesome. So thank you for that review. And if you love what we're doing and um, you have a moment, please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts. There's the details of how to do that are in the show notes. So you can go there and look for that. I guess it's super important and 
all these things and we're supposed to ask all the time we just don't know about that yeah, i know <laughs> we don't know we're gonna get getting we're getting better and we're, we're going to get even people. better aren't we? <laughs> and we've got awesome. for all the patrons and the new patrons welcome we've got some good stuff coming for you today you'll hear yeah. about that in the episode yeah thank you for reminding me about that have you had breakfast andrea actually i have not but i can oh. tell you what i'm going to make because oh, it yeah. actually ties in really well with today's topic Okay. Um, so when I was staying uh, um, with my friends down south this past week, then mm. they told me what they usually make for breakfast on Sundays before church. And I thought, well, that sounds really good. So they cook their sausage <clears throat> and then they actually scoop in some cream cheese and melt mm. it in. And then they beat their eggs and scramble them together. And well so... Done we made it while I was there. It was so good. Like eggs are just so creamy and delicious. And so our neighbors just gave us a container of sour cream. I mean, cream oh, cheese. Yum. So okay. I'm going to try that today. Wow. The cheese and mm -hmm. eggs together really are very good. Oh, aren't they? Yeah. Like just have you Rob used to, Rob used to make me a, something called special cheese and toast, which was grated cheese mixed in with egg and then plonked mm. on some lovely bread and Ew. under the grill delicious that sounds really good I don't have any <laughs> bread right now but but I would put this on bread for sure that would be she mm. said that they often roll it up like in burritos you know in a ah, tortilla. okay yeah it sounds delicious so you had lunch and what did you have? yeah yeah I had lunch I had leftover chicken um we cooked a whole chicken at the weekend of course <laughs> um which just puts me in mind of the episode we recorded a couple of um a couple of goes back on the chicken, yeah. the whole chicken and nothing but the chicken. So yeah, one. I've got a lot of leftover chicken in my fridge, which is just wonderful because I was able to pull some out and have some for lunch. And I had some sorghum with it that was cooked in chicken stock from the carcass and the head and the feet of that same chicken. And I had a bit of stock on the side to drink as well. And then I had some grated carrot and some chard, some red stemmed chard with it as well. Simple and oh, easy, yum. but delicious. Yeah. It, does chard in season where you're at right now? Just about. Yeah, just wow. about. They were really, really small leaves. Um, and I had to ask at the market last Thursday, what's this? Because I wasn't sure if it was kind of a kind of spinach wow. or what it was. Because we're used to really big leaf chard. But these were really, you know, quite dark, quite small leaves. But I was told it was bietola, which is chard. Mm. So, yeah, I wonder nice. if they're growing it in a hoop house. I think you Maybe. could have possible, yeah, you could have chard out here right now if you were growing it in a hoop house. Mm, maybe, maybe. Oh, Tasted awesome. really good. It was a break from the cabbage because there's just so much cabbage and it's just like, oh, can we can we have something a bit different from cabbage, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's but awesome. It was, yeah, it was very, very nice. And um, it was lots and lots of fat on there fat on the chicken skin and fat on the saw on the sorghum and oh, the that kind of leads us into today's episode <laughs> which is about fat we've been wanting <laughs> to do this one for ages it. haven't we we just mm. everyone asks us about fat we've got so much to say about fat and um finally we've got down to doing episode on it which i'm really pleased about Oh, I know this is one of the first episodes we ever discussed doing. Yeah. We just knew definitely. it was necessary and the time is right. Exactly. So here we are. Exactly. So I wanted to start out with um, just a kind of a very brief 
overview of why fats are so important. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, for nutrition, um, for flavour, and for keeping us full for satiation. And I also wanted to say that I'm sure that many people listening to this podcast know that fat doesn't make you fat. I spent most of my life thinking fat makes you fat until um, until I realised finding nourishing traditions and finding the ancestral way of eating that I could eat fat and I wouldn't get fat even though I have, if you've listened to our um, recent podcast about my weight loss, I have a really um, strong history of carrying too much weight. But fat does not make you fat. And fat gives us so many nutrients that aren't um, available other places and so much flavour because it's a flavour carrier and it fills us up. Um, is there anything you want to add to why you think fats are so important, Andrea? Um, well, they're a great energy source. So yeah, yeah, didn't think about that. You know, they can be a nice um, fast one, you know, especially if you're working outside or it's cold and you're metabolizing your energy faster. So what fats do you use in your kitchen? Um, so I, I read your list and I was like, yeah, we're mm. the exact same. So <laughs> we, lard, yeah, tallow. Yeah. <laughs> butter yeah we don't often have olive oil okay it's just kind of more of a luxury treat um and there's also no olives around here so <laughs> mm-hmm. um we do sometimes have avocado oil okay maybe in this place where you would use olive oil um yeah. uh, we don't have ghee very often we do have it sometimes um we don't use a lot of coconut oil maybe about a gallon a year Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we have cacao butter on hand also. Okay. So we basically use very similar fats with possibly yeah. the obvious difference that I live in Italy and therefore there's right. olives everywhere. So extra virgin yes. olive oil is, <laughs> is a staple here. Um, but we're both using lard and tallow and some of those in my kitchen have been rendered specifically and some of them are just left over from when I've cooked something yeah. and, you know, the fat stripped off. Um, we use butter, but not as much because it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I use mm-hmm. ghee. Um, I use cacao butter for the, the chocolate that I make and just a little bit of coconut oil. I think probably about the same amount as you. I feel yeah. like because it's not local at all to me, it's not something that I want to engage with regularly at all in my kitchen. Whereas mm-hmm. lard is very local. The tallow's local to me, the butter's local and the olive oil's local. Well, actually, now that, now that we're talking about the coconut oil, I realize the majority of that that quantity that I used, and, and I know how much it, how much we use just because I I can review my purchase history on the company mm-hmm. I buy the coconut oil from. Um, most of that went into candles, so we didn't even use it in the kitchen. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, okay. I've um I've never made candles with coconut oil. You got me thinking now. Yeah, it's Dave a nice be really excited pair with beeswax because um, then you're your candles don't melt too quickly or too slowly. Yeah. It's a really perfect. I, I shall store that for later. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> so why do you use those fats in your kitchen? Those particular ones that you listed. Oh, Sorry, an alarm went off over here and I had to figure out which one okay. it was. Um, can you say that again? <laughs> why do you use those fats in your kitchen? Well, they're available. I'm lard and tallow. I have really generous friends, the ones that we like to butcher with. And, um, like with the lard, when we get our hog from our friends, 
they butcher for other people too. And the other people don't want the lard. So Gosh. we just end up with a lot. I, I know you and me are both like, what? we end up with a lot of lard and um, the tallow when our friends um, butcher, you know, they'll do a couple cows and it's just us and them and, you know, a couple of families using the meat. So um, nobody else wants the tallow other than her and me. So the <clears throat> kind of the program we came up with last year was she brought me big cases of the frozen chunks of tallow and I rendered it all down mm -hmm. and then divided it between her and me. So, you know, she got her tallow rendered nice. and I got my tallow for free. So everybody was happy. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really And cool. then, yeah, butter. Uh, well, we've been making a lot of butter right now because this yeah. cow, Elsie, <laughs> she's producing a lot of cream. So and she's a Jersey, figured, isn't she? Your cow? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so make, make hay when the sun shines. <laughs> so we're making yeah. butter and she'll be dried up soon this month. So, you know, that source uh, will stop. Okay. Um, and then, but then she'll have her baby in the summer. So then source will return. Mm -hmm. So I just mm -hmm. want to have a lot of butter on hand to get us through. Yeah. Yeah. So you're using yeah. really what's local around yeah. you, which is what our ancestors would have done True. for the majority of history because that's all that would have been available um, right we didn't have much of a choice I think that for me my choice is dictated by what's around me just as much as that you know we render our lard from local pigs we render our tallow from local cow fat and the olive oil is around us definitely um yeah I think as opposed to using other fats because there are a lot of other fats on the market that one could choose to cook with I feel that the fats that we use are, in quotes, natural, in that our ancestors have adapted, you know, eating them, have changed eating them, have, have grown eating them. They are natural fats. They're what humans are used to. Um, in the kitchen, I like them because they have high smoking points. You know, that's often why I would choose ghee over butter yeah. because it's got a higher smoking point. And they don't degrade while they're cooking. So whereas other oils that you might use have lower smoking points or have problems when they're, when they're heating and produce um, things, anti-nutrients that are bad for you, then these particular fats don't. And the taste are really good. I mean, I'd love to taste them <laughs> and I can get them that's locally. True. So that's why I use those fats in my kitchen as well. Yeah. I wanted to talk for a bit. And I'm excited to see the book that, to talk about the book that you've got there about the fats <laughs> that we don't use in our kitchen, because, you know, we can list all mm. these fats that we, we use and we will later on talk about how we use them, but there's a very definite, um, fats we don't use in that assertion as well. And so for me, any other liquid fat other than extra virgin olive oil and when I'm looking for extra virgin olive oil I will look for a phrase in Europe for sure on the labels it has to say it's been extracted by mechanical means i.e they've used uh -huh. machinery to take that oil out not chemicals oh. so I would always look for that on a label and I would always use extra virgin olive oil. Any other oil apart from that, so that is any other form of vegetable oil, I don't use in my kitchen, whether that be a semi-solid vegetable oil like a margarine or whether that be a liquid oil like sunflower oil, sesame oil, almond oil. I don't use any of those. Um, I know you can get low cold-pressed sunflower oil that's very expensive, <laughs> 
but yeah. I just I haven't used it I mean it could be used to drizzle on um yeah salads but it's just something that that I don't use um are you the same yeah yeah I mean I haven't even found any sunflower oil that I could buy okay. although I haven't really looked either but I know that it, it does exist but again it like you said mm. it just doesn't come to the top of my needs list um it's, it's worth yeah. saying that I didn't used to use these fats. Um, I actually mm. can remember the first time I bought lard. Um, mm. So I basically grew up using canola oil and or vegetable yeah. oil and stuff. And I never, never even thought about what it was or what I was using. Yeah. Never even really crossed my mind. Um, and then when we started eating, you know, trying to find better food, organic food, local food, you really quickly figure out there's nobody at the farmer's market selling canola oil. So um, it, it just kind of started that investigation. And I am grateful, of course, going to mention Sally Fallon Mm. (laughs) for her book, Nourishing Traditions, because it was really helpful for me. That was probably one of my first exposures, if not the first exposure I had to, um, you know, well, maybe some blogs had mentioned it, but you know, I'm trying to I think learned. when I started using lard now, you've, you've made me sit here and think because I'm totally mm. obsessed with lard now, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember my first encounter with lard. I don't remember it. But I do um. remember that as a child, I mean, there was no lard in my kitchen. There was no tallow in my, in my parents' kitchen. No, no. There was not even any um, olive oil. It was vegetable that- oil. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> which is such a weird name if you think about it. Um, mm. I always was like, I didn't know vegetables had fat in them, but I guess they did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do I know? So that actually kind of brings us, I'm going to just briefly mention this book. And then mm. um, for those of you like me who geek out on food history, I'm going to spend a little bit more time. I'm actually making a video for you <laughs> patrons. So the video and the audio will go up on the podcast for the patron feed. And you guys can hear more about this if you want to. Um, but Crisco is a brand of cottonseed oil. And I don't know if it's, um, is it in Europe too, or is it just, I don't know if it's no. worldwide or just in the U S no, okay, the brand so is a US, US brand. brand I think. Yeah. Okay. Or, I mean, I know it's a U.S.-made brand. I didn't know if it was Mm. just sold over here. Um, So you might recognize the name William Proctor and James Gamble. If you live in the U.S., you're probably familiar with the company Proctor & Gamble. That's the guys who started it. Um, So they, Proctor & Gamble, were candle and soap makers. And you use lard to make candles. So this is, we're talking like the late 1800s that they were doing this. You use Mm -hmm. lard to make candles and soap. And then um, they were trying to figure out a cheaper way to make candles and soap. And they found that cottonseed was, it was a booming crop um, in these late 1800s era, but the seeds just spoil. I've tried saving them before. When I was a kid, we picked cotton and it just like all sprouts or goes rancid it's so weird but anyways um in 1911 they tried extracting oil from it but it also turned rancid very fast so then they hydrogenated it and it actually looked like lard like it was white and it was um like scoopable kind of firm um so procter and gamble thought okay we could use this this is cheaper and it's it's a waste product so it's just you know it's like 
buying somebody's trash, right? Nobody really wants it. So the price is low. So they thought, okay, we'll use that to make the candles. So they bleached and emulsified and deodorized it to make their candles. And then, <laughs> hello, the 1900s, um, electricity came on the market. Nobody wanted to buy candles anymore. <laughs> or they still buy candles, but it was not, you know, a necessary item. So they looked at their lard replacement and they're like, well, it looks like lard, so let's sell it for food. So they um, they actually spent more money on their Crisco marketing campaign than any marketing campaign had spent up until that time at any point. So they they tied it in with like they everybody wanted to hear the word science you know science mm. was very much becoming the name of the day like well scientific or sanitary it's sanitary you know that was very much the name of the game so um i have in my hand you, you might say well that's hearsay andrea but i i hearsay it from crisco themselves and it's in a bunch of other places you can just look it up online and sally fallon talks about it in detail in her book, um, Nourishing Fats. And then also I have this book from 1913 written by the Procter and Gamble Co. And they also share their story, kind of a purified version. They don't say this was a waste product and now we're selling it to us food. <laughs> they just say, look how sanitary this is. Um, it's interesting so to me, I've, Allison. I've seen that book. Yeah, you, you have. You sent me um, <laughs> photos of yeah. it, and I was absolutely astounded. Yeah. I mean, for to start with, there's like 600 and something recipes in there. So they were yeah, obviously so. trying to make it a, a book that stayed on people's shelves. Yeah, and well, it did. the yeah. marketing speak in it, I mean, it's so easy to okay. see with hindsight what, what was being done, you know, what in techniques were being employed but the words that are used the the drawings that are put in it the way it's it just pulls on all of the strings of the people who would have been making food decisions back then about economy yeah it's cheaper than lard and they talk Can about it being this? more sanitary than lard do you want to read some yeah just a short paragraph that i feel it's like just it blew my mind summarize one of now that I've told you why they came up with this, and then hear this paragraph of how they marketed it. Great foresight was shown in the making of Crisco. And I'll add, by the way, if you're um, a patron member, I took pictures of this entire section I'm about to read. It's called The Story of Crisco, and it's shared for the patrons um, in a patron document. So you guys can go in and download that and read it, the whole thing, if you want. Um, great foresight was shown in the making of Crisco. The quality as well as the quantity of lard was diminishing steadily in the face of a growing population. Prices were rising. The high cost of living was an oft-repeated phrase. Also, our country was outgrowing its supply of butter. What was needed, therefore, was not a substitute, but something better than these fats, some mm. product which could not only accomplish more as much in cookery, but a great deal more. <laughs> it's crazy you know yeah. I've been reading um Defending Beef and in that book Nicolette Harm Neiman goes into um trans fats to a quite oh, a deep yeah. level and of course Crisco because it's hydrogenated is right. a trans fat and she basically right. says you know that goodness knows how many thousands of people have been given health problems because yep. of 
the fact that hydrogenated fat was marketed to people and sold as an alternative to ancestral fats. And, you know, with that in my mind, reading that book... And the patrons will see when you, you know, you, we, we're doing it, we're doing a video where we'll flick through it. It's yeah. just, it kind of makes me wonder, well, I'm seeing that with hindsight. So what else is in the soup around me now? You know, marketing yeah. technique <laughs> as a science has come on some, somewhat in the last century. What soup are we in now? You know, what's being marketed to us like now, that now? Because I look at, the, at that book and I think, my gosh, the... Mm the health issues and the travesty that is and was trans fats and yeah. it's made out to be something amazing yeah Oof. you know some of the recipes in this book actually are good just gotta trade crisco back to lard they're just old recipes and then they, they just swapped out whenever it would have said lard they just put in crisco so i actually also <laughs> typed some of those recipes up in a document for the patrons. So you guys can download those recipes oh. if you want to make them. I'm going to have a go at those ones. with lard, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. Crisco, it's just, it's not a food. You know, it wasn't no, originally even intended to be a it was food. It meant to be one. And it's yeah. not a food. It's not um, that. And also the other vegetables that we were talking about, you know, that I said the only um, liquid oil that I use in my kitchen is extra virgin olive oil. Those other oils aren't stable at high temperatures that's another reason why we don't use them and a lot of those other oils have polyunsaturated fatty acids in which is something that we don't want to have too many of in our diet a lot of those oils are also high in omega-6s and we all know about Mm -hmm. the balance that we're supposed to have between omega-3 and omega-6 and you know just to hear how it's not just a matter of sunflower oil. This is something that a company took that was a waste product from cotton yeah. and then did something to it scientifically to make it like lard and then literally paid more money than any marketing campaign ever before to hoodwink people who, you know, who literally, they, they didn't know any better. And it just, no. it makes me quite angry (laughs) I I noticed (laughs) I've said it before and I stand by my statement that I honestly think that food marketers are the most brilliant marketers in the world I really do I think they are like the genius and the best and the brightest minds and I wish that they could be put to better use but oh my gosh imagine that um they're they're brilliant. I mean, the way that they study populations and get into our minds. Um, and there, there was another brand that was popular in the U.S. called Spry, and I'll share those mm. in the patron document too. Because um, you've got a, you've actually flyers. got a marketing book from Spry as well, which I've seen. You had a kind yeah. of a, an aunt, an yeah. Aunt Jenny character yep. to say how yeah. old-fashioned lard was and how fabulous yep. this new Spry cooking oil was. Yeah, <laughs> but Jenny's the bridge, right? Like she's still sort of like the cozy plump. Um, old-fashioned aunt right so she's yeah. making you feel safe and you know you know that marketers say if there's a name on on a brand then people yeah. are more likely to buy it so like all this all this stuff was just being studied and um, understood at this time and it was used to um, you know sell a product and I, I don't necessarily know I, I'm not saying Procter and Gamble 
were out there like, let's kill people with trans fans. You know, <laughs> I think they're just like, this is cheaper. And oh my gosh, look how much money we can make on it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, but here's where we ended up. So. And canola oil that you mentioned before is really similar in its story to Crisco in that that was a waste product after World War II ended. And so again, um, some scientific chemical process was, um, yeah. was, um, done to it the rapeseed oil that was used to make it fit for consumption and then it was marketed as canola oil and um yeah just the oh. amount of the statistics that show how much people swapped from animal fat to these fats and how fats like these now trans fats are banned in the u.s but um other vegetable oil fats are used everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Right. And right. it's astounding to think how in literally just a few generations, we've gone from ancestral fats that have been used for millennia, you know, literally <laughs> yep. since humans have been rearing pigs, which I think was, they were domesticated 8,500 it was a long time ago <laughs> so we've been coexisting with lard since then and yet in the last few generations we've turned away from those fats and virtually you know I don't know what percentage but a very 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 large percentage of the population right. is is using vegetable oils that we have never yeah. eaten for the rest of our history yeah. it's bonkers <laughs> so weird it's weird yeah and it's not good the power of marketing. Yeah, exactly. Power of marketing. You know, they say get, it only takes we like... Be, we need to get enough patrons so we can get those marketers <laughs> on our side. <laughs> you know, that only takes like what, you know, two generations or something to completely change, completely yeah. change foundational ideas because you have, you know, whenever this came out in 1913, Graham was probably like, you're kidding me. I love my lard. I'm going to eat my lard, you know. And then mom's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe that's better for you. And the kids are like, oh, you're so old fashioned. I'm going to, I'm going to use Crisco, <laughs> mm. you know? So I hope that then, in some places it's coming back round, certainly in the household. I know that people that I've spoken to who listen to the podcast, who um, have sent me recipes and said, you know, my, my grandma lived in Italy and she used to make this bread with lard. And wow. then when, when we, when she moved to the States, her daughter took it on. That was my mum, for example, and she changed Crisco. And now she's passed oh. the recipe to me, and I'm thinking of going back to lard. So in some households, you know, the ones that listen to this podcast, maybe the circle's turning back around, and that that feels good. But, um, yeah, like in that Crisco booklet, recipes that used lard, it was just swapped up for Crisco. And, and mm. I've seen that and heard that from people, well, how that actually happened in their own homes, you know. We have the best listeners to eat such good food. Yeah, <laughs> I want everything yeah, that they take pictures of. I'm like, why can't we just try it? <laughs> Look yeah, so a massive potluck. <laughs> oh my gosh. Kathy's bread, the salt bread. I was like, oh, I, I want that. that. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. All okay, right. So, so let's, let's talk about the good fats now. And yeah, um, let's put our attention on the good guys. You came up with a really good kind of mental bridge for understanding yeah. what a good fat is. So talk about that. Yeah, a good rule of thumb that I just lodged in my mind sometime back when I started learning about fats was a good a way to know what a good fat is 
is it, it's a fat you could raise and produce at home. And the production method used to prepare the fat is one you could do in your own home. Those are signs of a good nourishing fat. I'm sure that there's exceptions to the rule, you know, like there's some great fat you could, like I don't have an olive press, but technically yeah. I could press olive oil at home yeah. if I, you know, really wanted to. And it's something I could raise the hydrogenation, the bleaching, the sanitizing, you know, all this other stuff. It's a process that I couldn't replicate here. Um, well, like that I know of anyways, but <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's, I can't do the olive oil in my own home, but I could go to a local kind of cooperative and have my olives crushed with other people's yeah. olives. So um, everything else, all the other fats, I could do it at home. And you're making butter there. We're both making tard, yeah. um, lard and tallow. So. And the, I think it also is worth saying, and this is where PUFAs can come into the conversation a little bit, mm. is that the degree to which the difficulty of making, uh, raising, making and storing the fat is, indicates the degree to which it should be in your diet. So the more difficult it is to raise and produce and store, probably the less quantity should turn up in a natural diet. And then the easier it is, you know, lard, you can literally make it and store it on the shelf. Um, that's that's a, probably one you should use more of. So mm. That makes sense too. Let's yeah. talk about lard then because... Yeah, well, I like talking about we love lard. lard. Yeah, let's talk <laughs> about lard. Okay, so here in my house, we buy um, pig back fat from Flavio, my farmer, and then we render it ourselves. And we usually do that once every six weeks, I would say. We um, chop the fat up and then we put the slow cooker on and we put the fat in the slow cooker and we leave it. And it takes all day, every mm maybe at the beginning after three hours we take all the bits of fat out and we drain what's in the slow cooker through a sieve into a metal bowl and then we put everything back in and then we do that um at maybe one to two hour intervals for about eight hours and then at the end of that we have beautiful liquid lard which we let cool and then decant into um, containers and then we have the cracklings left and we will eat the lard. That lard will last us six weeks. We will use it to fry literally virtually everything in my kitchen is fried with lard. Yeah. To spread on bread, which I don't know if it, outside of England, whether people have always done that. But that's a particularly <laughs> English tradition, lard on toast with some salt. Oh, okay. So we spread lard on our bread. I put lard in my baked goods. And then the bits that are left over, the cracklings... I will use as well. So I put those in bread. I sometimes fry them up till they're really crispy and we'll put them on our dinner. Um, I will also often use the um, skin from the fat to crunch up, which is absolutely delicious. If there's Yum. any fat that's left on my um, in the bottom of my pan when I'm roasting something like um, you know a belly joint or a shoulder of pork, then if I'm not making a gravy and using and that, I will pour that into a little cup and leave that in the fridge. And then I really enjoy that on my bread because it's got kind of bits of dripping in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And in addition, I also make cured pig fat. So in Italy, that's called lardo. And I've done that wet cured and dry cured. 
and then I would use that sliced and eat it raw or put it on pizzas, um, put it in dishes. And that's got a more salty flavour because it's been cured mm. as long with kind of rosemary and juniper and other aromatics on it. And yeah, really lard is, I would say, 70% of the fat that I use in my kitchen is lard, I would say. Okay. Um, how do you do yeah. your lard? You said you said you rendered the tallow from the frozen. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds you do like the we lard do the same. Basically, the same. Um, mm. A couple times we've tried running the lard chunks through a meat grinder before we render it, which is nice because mm. it renders so quickly and so perfectly and so clearly. Um, so <clears throat> that's probably the only difference between our processes is we've tried that a few times. You know, I did that once, and. It kind of didn't go with our process because when I picked the bits of fat out of the slow cooker in order to get rid of the liquid, they kind of got stuck in the sieve that I was using. Oh. And then I found it hard <laughs> to get them back in. So I think maybe if I'd use a muslin to oh, strain yeah. them through, perhaps it would have worked better. Um, yeah. But because of that, I just went back to saying, oh, no, let's chop them up, even though it's more yeah. work. Yeah. I think nice. it just depends on like, we don't actually have our own meat grinder. We just borrow one from a friend. Ah, so okay. if you have one handy, that, that determines whether or not we'll grind the meat. I mean, the fat, and mm. then also, um, how much you're doing, you know, if you're doing a hundred pounds then it's kind of nice to have it ground up so it could go quicker. But if you're yeah. doing a smaller amount, five pounds, I wouldn't bother. And do you do that with the, have you done that with beef fat as well to make tallow? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it works okay. also. So what do you do with your lard? Um, gosh, well, what, what don't you do with <laughs> What lard? don't you do? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should ask that. <laughs> well, for the American audience, I would say whatever you grew up doing with Crisco. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah you, can, um, you can fry donuts in it. <laughs> if that doesn't sell you on lard, I don't know what will. Um, you can, uh, yeah, well, we just keep a little jar uh, I actually keep mine in the fridge most of the time, but if it's a small jar, I keep it on the counter, but uh, you put it on the pan, fry your eggs in it or, um, grease your cast iron pans with it in between yeah, making me too. Aaron's awesome injera <laughs> pattern thingy that he taught us. Um, yeah, just use it anytime you, I don't know. People always ask me, what do you use lard for? And I'm like, I don't know. Everything. whatever you use fat for like i don't know i use it <laughs> to grease my tins when i make bread yeah grease your tins with as it as well um you can <laughs> grease the axle joints on your wagon or <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you have a wagon well, i don't <laughs> no no <not> do i <laughs> <laughs> um but i remember that karima mentioned that in chewing the fat and then mm. um flora thompson mentioned it in lark rise to candleford they both oh. emphasized well, of course we use the fat in the kitchen but it's also what the men use for greasing their boots to make the leather yeah. last longer and their belts and their you know to, things like and that and use it on the wooden cutting boards and wooden yeah. tools which we do that because we have a lot of wooden tools so you can grease your wooden tools with it um yeah that's lots of uses we um and you can make keep our lard in the freezer some of it so when we yeah, do a six yeah. week um yeah. batch of lard rendering i will keep maybe one or two of those of the maybe six or seven containers that i get in the fridge and then i'll put the rest of it in the freezer and it freezes yeah. absolutely fine it, it defrosts much quicker than um 
non-fatty substances oh, yeah. so if you yeah, get it you out you can same. usually use it like within half an hour yeah um, <laughs> and and so it's you can just keep it in the fridge for a very very long time yep. and not have to worry about it at all yeah I should have said that for the long term we put the lard in the freezer and then I just take a pint out and put it in the fridge yeah yeah that's kind of similar to us yeah and lard okay. and tallow can be used for um candles and soap as we already kind of referred to earlier so um if somebody wants to do that go for it yeah we have <laughs> um a chat with ellie from ellie's every day on the patreon from quite a while ago where she mm-hmm. talks about soap making so if you're it's interested really in that we did have a discussion about using lard and tallow in soaps as part of that conversation yeah. so go back she's and, emphatic about check that out. using the fat that you have locally to make your soap and candles um and that's how she makes her formulas she said you know so that you can use the fat you have around you and be yeah. able to use her recipe for um whatever fat you have because that is logical (laughs) so talking about the fat we have around us let me um talk about olive oil for a little bit because yeah we are we are totally blessed to have this literally everywhere around us and the first thing that I remembered when I came to Italy and tasted freshly pressed olive oil was that it was a completely different food stuff a completely different product ah, to the supermarket yes. oil that I tasted in the past and I'm not just talking about you know rubbish not extra virgin olive oil that you can buy that's been chemically created and sits in someone's cupboard for six months I'm talking about good reasonably <laughs> good olive oil that you could buy in a supermarket in the UK where I grew up and when we first came to Italy, a friend had some olive trees and gave us a bottle of this freshly pressed olive oil. And it was green and it was mm. misty. And I was like, mm, this is a bit strange. And it was so fiery and peppery. I'd, I'd really never wow. tasted anything like it. And I couldn't use much of it. No, I couldn't literally pour it over my food because <laughs> it was so flavoursome. And I think a lot of people, olive oil's just been adulterated in many, many places and is made very cheaply for a lot of brands. And it doesn't bear any relation, I don't think, to proper freshly pressed olive oil, which the people who had olives, you know, our ancestors who had olives, would have been tasting and would have been um, ingesting. And I feel that, you know, the nutrition must shadow that difference in flavour in that I bet the nutritional profile of that olive oil, the freshly pressed olive oil that I first tasted was incredibly different to the chemically processed olive oil that, that I you know, had had in the UK before that's very, very cheap. Um, and I feel like it's interesting because people who've listened to the, the interview we did with Karima um, I've had my opinion about Italians and olive oil change quite radically in the last six months in that I always thought that Italians had been using olive oil throughout their country for centuries for everything. And reading Karima's book, um, Chewing the Fat, has opened my eyes and now I know that Italians have been using lard for centuries. Some Italians have been using extra virgin olive oil when they had olives growing around them. But in the past, before olive oil was um, offered as an alternative to saturated fat in the 1950s and 60s, 
not many Italians had olive oil. So I remember um, before that wondering about cooking with olive oil and how, how could these Italians who've been using olive oil for centuries be the healthiest people in the world and yet they fry loads of things? You know, how, how could they fry an <laughs> olive oil? You're not supposed to fry an olive oil. And I remember listening to a Ben Greenfield podcast where he was interviewing an olive oil, um, a guy who owned an olive oil import company um, who said that the polyphenols in extra virgin olive oil, because they're so high, they protect you from the antioxidants. And I thought, well, the hmm, antioxidants okay. or the oxidants? The, the oxidants, sorry. So they, okay. become an, they become like an antioxidant. Sorry, yeah. I meant to say that. Um, and I did do some research at the time and found stats to back that up. Although that and the interview were from people who were trying to sell olive oil. So I'm not sure I'm 100% convinced. But what I will <laughs> say is that um, Italians haven't been frying in olive oil for centuries and centuries. They've been frying in lard. Um, but also Italians use olive oil as a dressing very, mm. very often, you know, more so than they fry in it. So they will put it on salads. They will dress vegetables on it. They will put, put fresh oil on slices of bread. They will put it on their food, not cook with it. And that's generally what we do now. You know, now yeah. we're using lard as 70% of the fat in our kitchen. We will use that olive oil, that beautiful tasting olive oil to go on our salads and I will put it on greens. I will often put it on, I put it on cabbage a lot this winter to brighten cabbage up. And I will drizzle it over some cooked grains. And that's the main way that I use extra virgin olive oil in my kitchen. Mm. Sometimes I fry in it, but since we've had such a beautiful, bountiful um, supply of lard, I rarely do that anymore. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel like that feels like the right use of that oil in my kitchen. Totally. I don't want to fry with it because I prefer um, the solidity of lard. The kind of I know that the the smoking point of lard is higher. I know that yeah. I feel happy yeah. about um, how historically it is. It interacts with heat, and I just feel happier than than using olive oil and for us, lard is cheaper than olive oil, even though olive oil is ch much cheaper here than it is um, in the UK. Uh -huh. Lard yeah. is still much, much cheaper. That's yeah. So I'll use that. Yeah, I love that. And it sounds like you're more similar to, um, you know, it's not really Karima's opinion about olive oil. Her opinion about it doesn't really matter. Neither, neither does your, yours and mine. Mm -hmm. um, but the narratives that were shared with her is what we look at for that historical information and um it sounds like that like there was some women in italy at that time who lived regionally close to where olives were grown abundantly and um had access to some olive oil but it sounds like they still used it more similarly to how you're saying you know as a dressing and then there's other women who um 
lived farther away, different regions, and they just didn't, they either never had it or like that one woman with the bottle that the soldiers tipped over and she was yeah. like, what are we supposed to lick it off the floor? Yeah. <laughs> it was so it precious. Was precious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. So you, you don't have extra virgin olive oil there at all? No, you? I haven't. We haven't had any long time just because um, I, I don't even know how, I don't even know how to know if it's good. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know. I feel like at that price, if if I see olive oil, I'm like, that seems awfully cheap. I feel like that can't really be good olive oil. And yeah. I want that oil that you're describing, that that fresh, clearish, greenish, misty, you know, mm. um, flavorful. Um, and so since that's what I want, that's what I have in my head, then I don't know. You know, when you see olive oil pour out and it's like thick and you're like, I feel like that's canola oil. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. Good. So I don't want that. <laughs> so talk about butter then. Talk to us about um, okay. how you use butter in your kitchen. Um, well, we use butter a lot for a lot of things. It's in a lot of the things that I bake with. Um, we put it, we, we put butter on bread, toast. Um, yeah. There you go. Is your butter your butter <laughs> salted, isn't it? I I like the salt butter, yeah. So I I both buy butter um and we make butter. So um Katie made us a bunch the other day. It was really awesome. And mm -hmm. when we were gone all week, she just skimmed the cream off all the milk and made it all into butter and she did not salt it. So I I like it either way. If you're trying to keep it in your fridge for longer, then you can salt it. But if you're planning to use a whole you know, she froze them in balls, you know, so you're planning to use a whole kind of ball of butter at a time, then there's really no, you don't need to salt it because you're not trying to preserve it. So. Is your um, homemade butter, does it taste really different to the store one or not? Um, well, the butter we buy is pretty good. It's from a farm where the cows mostly just feast on grass. Um, most of the time and their butter looks very similar to the butter we make at home um and their butter is quite flavorful so but if you were going to get butter at the grocery store mm. it would not be the same <laughs> yeah so i guess it depends on what butter you're buying i think that's butter's a, pretty dark something that um i made a note to talk about that you've just said mm. which is think about what the animal that's producing the fat that you're using is being fed and that's yeah, kind and of what absolutely vital to sunlight is and that's yeah. really important because yeah, and, know, and even it's social life you know it doesn't have like a normal herd social life and um mm -hmm. all of that it, it all feeds into the health i mean look, look at a human <laughs> and just think about the things that affect you and if you have a horrible social life and things are terrible and then you know you're just yeah, not so we're back to the we're back to the know your farmer really which yeah. is the way to know the answer to those things i mean because or trust your middleman one of the, the other <laughs> yeah the um with butter i know that sally fallon and the, the western price association talk a lot about the difference between cows that are eating grass and cows that aren't eating grass and mm, what that yeah, imparts to the butter um but that's the same you know if you're making tallow from a cow and then with pigs, it's really important to be aware of what that pig is being fed because that's coming through into the fat that 
mm-hmm. that you're going to render potentially in your kitchen and and eat yourself. Um, if pigs and other animals are fed grains that they are not adapted to be eating and they're potentially fed um, polyunsaturated fatty acids, then the pig is going to put that on their fat that you're going to have. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that's a very, very big consideration in, in all of the that fats, I think, all the animal fats we're talking about. Yeah, um, Kate, Kate Deering mm-hmm. mentions it in her book, how to heal your metabolism. Um, I didn't bring that book down here, so I can't quote her directly, but she did talk about how it frustrates her that there will be studies saying eggs are good for this or bad for that. And she said, they never tell you what kind of egg. Yeah. And it, and in her opinion, and mine also, an egg from a chicken in a factory where there's you know four chickens living in a box the size of a piece, like a sheet of you know copy paper, um, being fed <laughs> unfermented and you know just soy or whatever um that's going to produce a different product than mm. a chicken that's you know scratching and pecking and eating something that it can actually digest in its non-ruminant little digestive tract um totally and she did say that chickens that are fed a diet high in polyunsaturated fatty acids tend to produce, well, they do produce, you know, their, their meat, their fat, um, is higher in the PUFAs as well. Yeah. And so it's, it's a different product. Yeah. Which, completely. um, you know, somebody can have their opinion on which one they prefer. That's fine. I'm just saying it's a different product. <laughs> it's two different things. It's like saying, um, I have to go back to defending beef because that's what I'm reading at the moment. It's like saying yeah. that beef is the problem of everything in our food system. Right. And then right. look at the difference between industrialized beef that's, you know, jabbed with um, injections all its life and fed goodness knows what compared to a cow yeah. that's in a field that can be used for nothing other than growing grass that's out in the yeah. air. It's just they're different foods. What well, when you read this Crisco right. book, something that I took note of right off, and I'm really interested to see what um, our listeners take note of whenever they read the story of Crisco, the snapshots I took from the book. But something mm-hmm. that I took note of right off the bat was fat itself is not demonized in this book. Fat wasn't mm-hmm. considered bad at this point. You know, they're like, oh, we need fat, but how to get fat that we can afford? I know, Crisco. Mm-hmm. So the thought that came to me was, then the next generation, you know, started saying, gosh, fat seems like it's actually really bad for you. We're noticing bad effects from eating fat because they're yeah. all eating processed fats. Yeah. You know, more processed fats and, and it was becoming even more prevalent in the diet and then moving less to boot. Mm. And so then the solution was whiplash, no fat at all. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're starting to come back into Hold up, hold up. That seems like a really bad idea. Did you know your brain can't function without fat? Okay, let's put some fat back in our diet, but let's make it the good one. Because the answer is nuanced as it always is. You know, it's Mm, never clear and simple. Let's go back to the last (laughs) few fats on our list. So I was just going to say that I use ghee to fry Mm. with more than butter because I know it's got a much higher smoking point. And I also use it sometimes when I want to treat because I don't use butter that often. Sometimes, when, you know, for instance, if I have a pancake, I'm just really in a kind of a buttery mood and I'll fry my mm, pancake in ghee. Course. Sometimes I put some ghee in my um, cacao husk tea that I drink and so it just rounds the flavour a bit. 
Yeah. And it's beautiful. Coconut oil, like you, we we don't use it very much. I do like it with sweet potato, so sometimes I'll put it on that. And I also use it 50-50 with cacao butter in the chocolate that I make. I used to fry use it to fry pancakes um, before we had a regular supply of lard, but it I know that it's got a lower smoke point than lard because I used to struggle with my cast right, iron pan right. and the coconut yep. oil in it. It would start yep. smoking at the at the temperature that I wanted to um, have it at. I um I made a note of the smoking points for the different fats um, because I know I've I've always tried to kind of have it on hand because I was thinking which is the highest which is not and I wanted to just read through them so people could understand. So tallow is um, smokes at two hundred and five centigrade, which is four hundred Fahrenheit. So that's Phew. really high. Ghee's higher yeah. than that at two hundred and thirty C, four hundred and fifty F. Lard is 185. Oh, ghee. Ghee. Yeah, that's why ghee is so fabulous to fry with. Um, After that, the next one down is duck fat and chicken fat, which my sources say 190C, 375F. And then lard is 185C, 370F. Extra virgin olive oil has a big range. So from 165 to 190 C, 325 to 375 F. And I think that depends on the polyphenols possibly in it. And then butters at the bottom at 175 C, 350 F of the main fats that we use. Um, And it's uh, good to know that Mm. bad things can happen to your fat even before it smokes. So Mm. um, I know people always... I, I first learned that with grapeseed oil when everybody said, oh, it has such a high smoke point. And then I was reading about it and I was like, well, it has a high smoke point, but it actually, I, I believe it starts turning into free radicals before it even smokes. Wow. So okay. um, that's that. something to be aware of as well. I mean, I, if you're frying in tallow and lard, you're good. Like you're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about yeah, anything. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We didn't really talk about duck fat and chicken fat because those are not no. something that those are more incidental for us. You know, we're cooking a bunch of duck Me or too. fat or chicken or something, and then we just skim it off and use the jar within the week. So Yeah. And I love chicken fat spread on bread. I, I uh-huh. love to save the fat that's in the bottom of a roast chicken and then let it sort of set in the in the fridge and spread mm. it on my on my toast or my bread. It's absolutely delicious. <laughs> so good. I especially love it when it's from mm. roasting some chickens or or any bird. Um, I like to put butter on top of them when they're roasting. Because <laughs> okay. then, then when I skim yeah. off, it's like schmaltz plus butter, mm. but it also has all the herbs that I cooked it with. Yeah. And we just, we just pick the herbs yeah. right out of the yard. So they're like, really good and then I strain it and you have this herbed butter schmaltz mix it's like what that sounds delicious (laughs) so good yeah did you want to talk about kids and fats um before yeah I'm seeing we're we're kind of at time and I think we've got to have some other episodes on fats separately because I feel like we've literally just scratched the surface of fat this is the intro um, we'll mm. go deeper on another one yeah exactly what did you want to say about kids and fats Um, so Sally Fallon, I I think it's worth mentioning just because, um, low fat is such a idea that we have, but it's so, so important for children also for pregnant and breastfeeding women, also people who want to have babies one day. Mm. So I think we we're recognizing now 
that if we don't have fats in our diet, you know, you actually can become, you know, infertile. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, in Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Fats, <laughs> Allison, we're talking about this for an hour and there's like an entire book on it. Like it's, you know, 250 pages long. So you see what we mean when we're saying we're barely scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, Weston A. Price, who I, everybody probably knows this by now, he was a, a dentist and he went around and looked at people's teeth all around the world. Um, let me try to find the place that I noted. He noted that all these groups, hold on, I keep losing my place. Okay. <laughs> um, he studied so-called primitive peoples during the 1930s and 40s. He noted that all these groups valued one or more sacred foods considered important for men and women to consume at least six months before conception mm. for women during pregnancy and lactation and for children during growth. In Switzerland, so so every culture had these something, and, and you see that that sacred food was, it wasn't based on the marketing campaign or, you know, what was imported to Whole Foods. It was based on what they had around them and what they observed worked. So in Switzerland, that food was a deep, yellow, nutrient-dense butter from cows eating rapidly growing spring grass. In the Outer Hebrides, did I say that right? The mm -hmm. sacred food was fish heads stuffed with oats and chopped cod's liver. For many groups, the sacred food was fish eggs. For others, it was liver. South Sea Islanders of both sexes consumed the oil from fermented shark livers for a period before conception. When Dr. Price asked the various groups why they consumed that particular food, the answer was always the same. So we can have healthy babies. <laughs> the sacred foods had this in common. They were nutrient-dense animal foods with particularly high levels of fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K2, and especially vitamin A. I thought that was interesting. Um, just talking about how important it is. And and when you talked about defending beef and you said, where, where did the cow live and all of that, you know, the vitamin D and the vitamin A that you get from your tallow and lard is so important, um, mm. but it doesn't really, it, it happens because the animals, you know, standing in the sun <laughs> and eating food that stood in the sun <laughs> and converting yeah, do, it into something Doing we what can... it does naturally and that plant was doing what it does, you know. Yeah. I think yeah. that fertility edge to fat is so important and it kind of fits in with my story in that you know I was yeah. we've talked about this before in the podcast that I was without a cycle for five years and I was very 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 fat phobic and right. then coming to learn about what traditional cultures had used as fertility th foods through the generations and realizing that they were animal fats and that fat was a huge part of you know, what I needed to re-embrace if I wanted to um, bring back my cycle and become a mother. And, you know, mm -hmm. I actually, that happened to me. I re-embraced fat. It wasn't pretty, but I did. And I credit re-embracing fat with bringing back my cycle and allowing me to conceive. And so I think there's so much wisdom in that, that this kind of fat phobic society that we've lived in goes hand in hand with 
fertility problems obviously it's not the only reason there are many things that are wrong with our health and society but I think that fat is an important one of those and and for me personally I'd I'd vouch for it um as a very important part of of staying um, fertile and preparing for a baby for sure Lexi pointed something interesting out on her podcast where she said that um she 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 ends up talking to a lot of women who are facing infertility and she said that more often than not when they talk to a doctor they they get one of two answers one of which is like i guess you'll just never have children which is what they told you mm. and the other is well you could try this treatment mm. but nobody i mean there's somebody out there but by and large they're not saying have you tried butter yeah <laughs> So um, that there was that footnote on page 140 in Nourishing Fats where um, the author said, no one has looked at the effect of low-fat dairy on fertility starting at age two as government agencies recommend. The odds are that infertility due to lifelong fat starvation, which is what most girls today engage in, will not be so easily reversed by a temporary return to high-fat dairy foods. So they were talking about like people saying, oh, maybe you should just eat fat when you're trying to get pregnant or something. Um, but they're, they're saying this is an entire body system that needs to be healed and nourished and not just a short term, you know, get pregnant quick scheme. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I wish that I wish that I'd found the information that I did many years before I did. But um, we all have our journey. Grateful you found we? it when you did. Yeah, exactly. You have Very Gabriel now. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, What else was I going to say? I was going to say that we should do a separate episode on fertility because it's something that is close to both of our hearts and, you know, fats play into that. And I know that there are a lot of good people out there who are helping with ancestral diets and their role in fertility. So we should certainly look at doing a separate episode on that. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk to um, regarding fats before we close? we covered a lot on cacao butter another little tip i learned from lexi she gets the little Mm. cacao butter pastilles from azure standard and when she puts her Mm -hmm. raw milk in her milk steamer she throws in one of the cacao butter pastilles so it whips up with it i tried that oh my word it's It's so good (laughs) it's sometimes i put it in my drinks it's nice (laughs) (laughs) so there you go a little snack for later (laughs) we could we could go on for a long time we have fat i know the um the sequel in fact the sequel sequel possibly Okay, so continuing story. Go and um, head over to the Patreon feed if you want to nose into that Crisco book and to see the recipes that um, we've made into a PDF for you. And um, we shall be back with another episode soon. Thank you ever so much. You know we will. All (laughs) right, thanks, Alison. Good chatting. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Bye.